You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. Dr. Chris Smith joining us now. Um, in the UK, do you guys have to tip your waiters? Yeah, it's about 10% actually. So we um, generally find that most outlets will, if you're a small group at least, ask you if you feel that you've enjoyed the experience to add on a gratuity and most people customarily add about 10 percent but sometimes and this actually irritates me when you go to a restaurant and you're a bigger group they just take the liberty of adding the tip on and i I think that should actually be my choice i think it should be up to me to make that decision and usually i don't unreasonably withhold my my tipping i do like to 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 reflect on and um and reward the staff who work very hard to make me have a good time there but i think that should should remain my choice i don't i don't like it when the tips are shoved and enforced on the bill and you kind of feel bad if you haven't had the experience you would expect taking it off because then you look really stingy but um no it's about 10 percent. i know some countries it's a bit higher but, but about 10 percent. in new york it's 20 percent. anything less than 20 percent, they go oh what was wrong with the service and i'm going i'm paying in rands and i don't have enough money to (laughs) to afford the tip that you are paying um chris is here to answer your questions any science related questions you can give me a call on 011-883-0702 and chris your first question is from tabiseng in sasselberg tabiseng good afternoon what's your question for chris Hi, Chris in Africa. Thank you so much for having me. My question is, I've always wondered whenever you throw up, tears just come out of your eyes uncontrollably and at the same time also new cash. And I wondered why is that so? I have never noticed that type of thing at all, actually. You're going to say something worse. I, I was, um, I was so- thinking back to the last time I did vomit because i was not feeling well and i imagine tears did come but that was because i wasn't paid more so than anything else (laughs) but chris there's a couple of things going on here number one is that when you throw up your automatic or autonomic nervous system puts the entire process of digestion and swallowing into reverse and so there's a lot of activity in your automatic nervous system, which also includes the system that makes tears. So it does reflexly produce more secretions, more saliva, and also more tears, because the, the systems that are driving those secretions ramp up their activity, with good reason. You want, you want stuff to come out quickly and then be rinsed away, don't you? The other point is that when you do throw up, you get a really high increase in pressure in your nose and throat, at least when the act is occurring. And I'm really sorry to anyone who's just having a late lunch right now. And when you have this really high increase in pressure, this is transmitted up your nasolacrimal duct to your eyes. Because normally you produce tears from your lacrimal glands, which are on the upper outer part of your eyelid. And the glands tip tears into your eyes. They flow across your eye surface. And then the excess tears that haven't evaporated drain into a small duct, your nasolacrimal duct, which is on the inner lower corner of your eyelid. And this drains down into your nose. And this is why when you cry, your nose runs because the excess tear production ends up in your nose and it makes you have a runny nose. If you block off that duct by, as you're throwing up, there's a very high pressure in your nose, you stop the tears draining away temporarily and you're making more tears to start with. So you will find that you will have uh, often uh, a bit of um, sort of excess moisture around your eyes when you've you've been throwing up. I think that's probably the, the two reasons why that happens. Good question, Debbie Singh. Thank you very much for asking it. Uh, Charles, you are in Eastgate. What's your question for Chris? Good afternoon. 
Hi, Africa. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. How are you? Good, good. Um, Africa, I've got a question. Um, this question has been bothering me for some time. Um, in terms of uh, beard, beard growth, you get people which, let's say, let's say for example, in, in, in South Africa, where you get um, black African um, people who struggle to grow beard, and yet when you go to certain provinces like in Popo, in Venda, you get the same black African dress. Their beard, they, they manage to grow bushy beard. Um, um, yet, in the very same area in Limpopo, you get people who struggle to have beard. I have, for example, my friends who admire me a lot um, for growing beard, but he struggles to have beard. What is this phenomenon where you get other people who struggle to have beard and others, they grow his beard? Chris, hopefully it's not the not the women with the beards. I hope, but um, <laughs> the, the answer is that you grow a beard because you're producing hair from hair follicles. Hair follicles are little rings of stem stem cells that sit in the skin, and they produce this protein, keratin, which comes out through the skin and forms a filament, and it grows. And it has a long phase of growth in the beard. And other parts of the body, the hair there has a shorter phase of growth, which makes sure that you don't, for instance, block up your eyes by growing unfeasibly long eyelashes. But this is under chemical control and also genetic control. Some people do make more of these hair follicles as they're developing, and so they're hairier than others. And some people also have hair follicles that will have a longer growth phase and others that are more responsive to the hormones and signals that make hairs grow. And this will vary by where people live, by uh, their therefore genetic makeup, but also by their nutritional status as well. If people are undernourished, then the body says, well, what can I save energy on? It's a bit like thinking, I've only got so much money. Um, what lights can I not turn on? What heating can I not turn on? What food can I not cook to save some money? Body says, well, I haven't got much to go around here, so I won't waste much resources on growing fingernails and hair. So there's a range of factors, and they will include the nutritional status, as I've just said, but also... The, the sex of the person, the age of the person, and also um, genetically. Some people are genetically programmed to be hairier than others, and I think all those factors are probably playing a role. I suppose it begs the question then, what is the use and purpose of a beard, and therefore what disadvantage does a person who cannot grow a beard uh, endure as a result, and obviously uh, as would be the, the woman. But that, that's a question for another day. Uh, Tim is in Kempton Park. What's your question for Chris? Hi, good afternoon, Africa, and hi, Chris. Hello, Tim. Go ahead. What's your question? Okay, I, I always wondered um, uh, why the wild dogs, for an example, when they go to hunt, they will leave um, one uh, wild dog looking after the young one, some kind of a name, and how do they communicate that, and what is basically the benefit uh, for that name uh, left behind to look after the, the young one? All right, uh, Tim, it's not the strongest of lines, but Chris, it goes to wild dogs. Why is it when they're going hunting, they'll always leave one uh, parent, if you like, to look after the puppies? Uh, and how do they determine that that particular dog is the one that's going to be left behind? I don't know the answer to that. It's a lovely question. And, and obviously it comes down to evolution and what's successful. Because if a, if a strategy works, then it benefits lots of individuals and they will use that strategy more because they will hand that behavior 
and if it's genetically programmed, that genetic program, those genes that are responsible to it for it, onto their offspring, so it become reinforced and enriched in the population. The, the, there are many animals that are social animals that have a pecking order or a hierarchy in their society, and they will trust certain animals to do certain jobs, or they will delegate certain members of the pack or group to do certain jobs. So certainly that will come into play, but I don't know the actual nuts and bolts of how they decide, in inverted commas, who uh, gets to go out, who has to stay home. If anyone knows the answer to that, do please let me know. I welcome the insights. It's a very good question indeed. Bethwell in Pretoria, what's your question for Chris? Good afternoon. Hey, good day. How are you? Very well. Thank you very much. How are you doing? Good, good. Uh, my question is that, you know, I wanted to know that why is it that every time I take a bath and then I will eventually end up with like skin rash and yeah, it's really, it's like burning and itchy and, you know, after scratching it for a while, then my body starts to swell up. And it's like every time I take a bath. So I don't really understand. I thought maybe the doctor might know. And and just to be clear, if you take a shower or something other than a bath, you do not have the same rash? No, every time I touch, like I, I take a shower or a bath or anything. Wow. That's anything to do with touching water. You know, if I were to like just wash my face or my hands, I don't get that. But if I go the whole body into the bath or shower my entire body, then I will have rash and it's <laughs> like really... Oh goodness. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds very trying. I mean, there, there is a condition called aquagenic urticaria. Aqua, as in water, genic, causing urticaria, as in hives or itchiness, nettle rash, swelling. And this is, in some people, we don't know exactly why this happens, but it's almost like they're allergic to water. And the impact of the water on the skin produces a reaction, which is down to histamine, which makes the skin have the same reaction you get when you've had histamine in your skin because you've had uh, nettle rash or an allergy or uh, hay fever in your eyes and on your skin. So it may well be that that is what is happening here. The other things to consider, common things to consider, are whether or not there's something in the water or something you're putting on yourself to get clean when you're in the water. So exclude those possibilities. And if the only thing that does this is pure water and water alone, it could be the, the temperature of the water. That's worth testing as well. Vary the temperature of the water. That, if it's excluded, leaves behind this idea that you may have this. It's fairly rare, but it exists, aquagenic urticaria, and it may well be that that is what is the cause for you. Heavens, Bethel. Good luck with that. And uh, obviously do go and visit a healthcare professional um, to have a further discussion about it. Thank you for your call. Uh, Tabo in Pretoria, you've got an interesting question. Good afternoon. Hi, afternoon, Africa and doctor. Uh, me, it's, it's with related to the fuel in the car. Once I refill, because looking at now it's winter. So I'm always wondering, like, you know, there are some days when it's extremely cold. You can feel even your toes, you can't feel them. So I'm asking about the fuel. What, what is happening to it? Why can't it freeze also? So when I start the car, maybe it doesn't even start or something like that. So the people in Iceland who are always in ice, What's happening? What's, what's with this chemical? What's wrong? Is it an antifreezer fuel or what? What's happening? How does that <laughs> I, Imagine that excuse when you call your manager because you can't come to work. <laughs> Sorry, boss, yeah, my I, fuel I, has I, frozen I, in the I, tank. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely question, Tabo. Chris? Uh, hi, Tabo. The answer to this is that uh, some fuels do freeze and 
historically diesel used to be notorious for this. And as you lowered the temperature down to around sort of naught or minus five, minus ten, it would start turning into wax and they would call it diesel waxing. And the diesel would form a solid slurry in the diesel lines and it would end up starving the engine of fuel and it wouldn't run. And there were pictures in very, very cold winters of truck drivers with their trucks broken down by the side of the motorway and they were actually lighting fires underneath their fuel tanks just to warm the fuel up enough to make it actually turn back into a liquid again and then run into the pump and then it could be injected into the engine. This doesn't happen with the majority of fuels that are much lighter because they are, things like petrol, much more volatile. What we mean by this is diesel is long chains of carbon atoms, about 8 to 10 carbon atoms long. And when you lower the temperature, these are very sticky molecules and they get very close together and then they stack up rather like bricks to form nice big chunky molecules that are all stacked together and that's why it forms a solid. Petrol is much shorter chains, which are therefore less easy to stack together. They're like bricks that are all funny shapes and sizes. And because they can't get as close to each other, they're not as sticky towards each other, they are harder to drive together. You need lower and lower temperatures, really very low temperatures, to make petrol freeze. And it's for that reason that petrol stays as a liquid, even at very low temperatures, because the temperature isn't low enough to make it turn into a solid, whereas heavier fuels like diesel and some heavier fuel oils need to be at a higher temperature in order to remain as liquid. It happens much less these days with diesel and other heavier oils, though, because the petrol companies have developed special additives that they can put into the fuel, which don't affect the performance of the fuel as it burns as a fuel, but they do insert themselves between the long chains of the molecules, stopping them getting close to each other and stacking up quite so easily. And they also change the composition of the fuel a bit, so that it is much less likely to form these big blobs, which are a solid. So it tends to happen a lot less often than it did in the past. Good question, Tabo. Thank you very much. Manu is in Midrand. What's your question for Chris? Hi. Good afternoon, Chris and Africa. Uh, my question is, is color an actual property of matter, uh, or is it just our interpretation of the electromagnetic waves that are entering our eye? Um, because, you know, we give it that interpretation. So is color an actual property of matter? That's a very good question, Chris. Very, very philosophical as well, because um, when I'm looking at the wall in front of me, which is a, a sort of blue wall in this studio, it is blue because someone told me that color is blue. I have no idea, though, if you, Africa, sat next to me and looked at the same wall, the experience that you had in your brain, whether it, it too would be the same one or whether it would be a different experience, but you're calling it blue because someone told you, too, that that's blue. We think it probably is the same experience for all of us. It's not just an educational thing because people tend to like the same sorts of colours and the same sorts of combinations of colours, regardless of where they live on Earth, how they grew up and how they've been educated, suggesting because we all have the same brain anatomy, we're probably experiencing the colours the same. But outside of our bodies, the light coming to us, why has that wall or that wall or that coating got that blue colour? This is because the light which is coming from that surface, it's absorbing all the colours of the spectrum, but it's reflecting certain photons of certain energies, in other words, sizes of waves, which when they hit our eye, they 
stimulate a certain population of cone cells, which are the light-sensitive cells in the retina. And when those cells are stimulated, they create electrical impulses that are sent to the brain, creating the experience of a blue colour. And so we only call it blue because that's what we've been brought up to experience and call blue. But the light packets that make that are just part of a big swathe of different energies of light and different sizes of light waves, which are all different colours. We can see a tiny slice of those that we call the visible spectrum, which range from blues and purples at one end to reds at the other end. But the light waves have those intrinsic properties, their size, their wavelength, and therefore their energy is different between all the different colours. And so you could say that colour is a specific property that's intrinsic to the light. Our experience of those energies and properties, though, is very much down to how our eyes process the information and how our brain presents it to our consciousness. No, for sure. And of course, a further question is, do men appreciate that differently to women? Because men are notorious for being colorblind, aren't they? McDonald, you are in Yeovo. Good afternoon. I'm all right in yourself. I'm pro white. Uh, white. I got a question. I want to know, like, why do other people go uh, gray hair very fast as an early as 17, 16, 20, and we're becoming, we're becoming my goggles. People to ask my goggles already. You see, in the eyes, the eyelash is white, gray hair. But in, at an early stage, why? 17, 16, 17, 20, 25. Can, uh, can maybe the doctor explain? <laughs> no, for sure. Uh, Magogo's um, Chris is a reference, a term of endearment, really, for grandmothers, so senior citizens, <laughs> basically. Uh, why, why do some people uh, get grey hair much earlier than the rest of us? Well, to understand grey hair, you first of all have to understand why hair has colour at all, because the natural colour of hair is white because it's made of a protein called keratin, which is made in a hair follicle by a ring of stem cells. And as the keratin thread is produced, there's another population of cells sitting nearby, which are called melanocytes, which are actually found under the skin all over the body, and they give our skin its basal colour. That's why somebody uh, like me is white skin, someone like you is black skin. It's, it's the contribution of melanin being added to the skin by these cells. And in your hair follicles, they make melanin which is added to the hair. And that gives the hair its colour. And there's eumelanin, which is one flavour of melanin, which is black. And there's pheomelanin, which is another f- flavour of melanin, a slightly different composition, which is yellow. And if you vary the ratio of those two, you can get different coloured hair. And that carries on for you know as many years as you have your hair colour. But then, over time, people often say, I'm going grey. And if you look carefully, you'll see that hairs often have reverted in amongst the coloured media to their natural white colour. And when seen together, lots of hairs, some are one colour, some are a white colour, it gives the impression of a sort of speckly, pepper grey colour. But actually it's because some hairs have lost the ability to add colour to themselves anymore. And this is because the the melanocytes, which add the colour to the hair, have expired. They've clapped out, they've given up the ghost, and they've become senescent and they don't work anymore. So the hair just becomes its natural white colour. It often doesn't do it all at once, though. Sometimes it it becomes a bit of a hit and miss thing where the amount of melanin it's adding to the hair kind of waxes and wanes for a while before it gives up the ghost altogether. And the age at which that happens is very much determined genetically. Some people who have a long family history of staying um, very much uh, normal hair colour right into old age, that tends to run in families. Other people do have a history of going greyer more prematurely. In some people, though, 
it's because there is an immune problem attacking the, the melanocytes. You see this in the skin with vitiligo as well. You can actually lose, because of an immune attack, the cells that make the colour, and that can make a patch of hair suddenly become white. But in most people, it's because age and the biochemical stress of making melanin and colouring your hair for you eventually wears out those cells and they stop adding colour to the hair and they go a grey colour. And, and that, to an extent, is because of your biochemistry and that is determined by your genetics. It all makes sense. Chris, thank you very, very much. You should be back with Rubakhili next week, Monday. I know I made the promise last week, but she should be back. Uh, she should be back this Wednesday, in fact, so it's all good. Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, back with us, of course, on Monday afternoon. You can find them on the Naked Scientists, plural, dot com.